0: From the ancient pages of the Old Norse Edda to the interwar pages of American adventure magazines, the depths of our oceans have, in imagination, been host to unspeakable monsters for many hundreds of years. In modern times, the phrase, here be dragons, has been absorbed into popular culture as titles for books, films, TV shows, bands and video games. All this despite the fact that it only ever appeared on the unknown seas of a single 16th century globe. Far more common were the giant sea monsters that adorned maps for hundreds of years, existing only as illustrations and in the minds of those that viewed them. In the summer of 1817, just off the coast of Massachusetts, however, these illustrations became flesh and blood for several weeks when witnesses of a giant sea serpent numbered into the hundreds in what the 19th century Harvard professor Jacob Bigelow called the most interesting problem in the science of natural history. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 18 of Dark Histories, and the final episode of Season 5. This episode is about a week late, uh, for anyone keeping tabs. Uh, But yeah, I I actually thought I had COVID. I woke up one morning and... uh, just, just couldn't. I could, I could hardly breathe. My chest was just in like real pain. Had to like sort of hunch over every time, everywhere I walked to stop myself coughing. So I was just coughing my lungs up everywhere. And I was quite surprised because you know I've been pretty careful, double jabbed and all that. But I thought, well, you know, I guess it gets us all. I had all my tests and everything. Turns out it's just good common old fashioned commonal garden winter virus so yeah um I'm better now anyway so that that's cool but yeah that's that's why this episode is a little later say um and to be honest it kind of works out because this being the final episode of the season I obviously will be going on my on my December break um I I say a break over December and I always have it but it's it's not really a break because I still will be putting out content that will still be having episodes uh There'd just be things like the Christmas Campfire episode, which if you would like to take part in this year, definitely get your stories in. By, say, I think I said the deadline would be the 20th of December. If you would like to get involved, definitely get your stories into me. Uh contact at Dark Histories. that would be really cool. We've had loads of really great stories so far. Um, but hey, we can never have too many. And um, yeah, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, go back and check out the other. Uh, like other years, Christmas campfire stories, basically, uh, you know, it, it's a kind of Christmas tradition of telling old stories around the campfire, you know. Um, so yeah, if you've had any sort of creepy uh, events happen in your life, or you've got a kind of story that feel like it might fit that sort of theme, and you'd like to share it, um, send it to me and I'll I'll read it out for the Christmas campfire episode. It's pretty much my favourite episode of the year. So I'm really looking forward to that. So yes, my December break. Um, like I said, I take a break every December. Um, just for the for the month. Um, and just focus on the Christmas campfire episodes. Just really, it's it's my my birthday uh, next week, and then Christmas after that. So I just figure it's as good a good time as any to take like a few weeks off. Um, and it just gives me some time also to go back and do like the housework stuff and end of season kind of clear up and. And figure things out for the the sort of coming year. You know, start planning things out. Start working out. Yeah, it's just boring housekeeping stuff that I'm sure you guys don't want to know about. So anyway, that's why I take it. Um, But it's going to be really short this year because, like I say, this episode coming out a week late um, sort of means that the December break is going to be even less of a break um, than usual. So yes, uh, anyway, I'm sort of waffling. So let's crack on with it. Um, Like I say... Just One last reminder if you do want to take part in the Christmas campfire, get your stories into me, that would be great. But otherwise, let's move on with it. This week's episode is a really fun one. I wanted to end the season on a uh, something enjoyable and fun. Uh, so, this is the Gloucester Sea Serpent of 1817. For thousands of years, sea serpents and ocean dwelling monsters. Have enjoyed a prominent role in the mythology and folklore of just about every seafaring culture on earth. In antiquity Jormungand from Norse mythology was a giant Ouroboros-type serpent that encircled the earth. The Mesopotamian myth of Tiamat, a goddess of creation, was similarly often depicted as a dragon or monstrous sea serpent. The ancient Japanese Ryujin was a god of the sea and depicted as a dragon with a long scaled serpent-like body and in Greek mythology The multi-headed Hydra was a giant sea serpent-like monster with poisonous blood and a stench that would draw those around it into a fatal sickness. The Middle Ages saw the legends and myths manifest themselves across the globes and maps of the world as cartographers charted new territories and marked unknown areas with all manner of exotic beasts. One of the most famous was drawn by a Swedish Catholic priest in 1539 named Olaus Magnus, who produced the most detailed map of Scandinavia available at the time. The Carta Mariner measured 125 by 170 centimetres and featured a host of bizarre monsters infesting the oceans. Giant fish with pig's heads, crimson sea serpents entwined around ships, dragons shooting multiple jets of water out of their heads and sporting giant tusks. It was, on the one hand, a scientific and cartographic wonder and on the other a true imaginarium. Throughout the medieval and renaissance periods, it was the fashion to draw maps in this manner. The sea creatures were multi-purpose, and given the fact that the majority of maps of this scale were not made for navigation at all, rather for display in rich people's homes, more than a little ornamental, filling the empty spaces of unknown territory. At the same time, they warned of the inherent dangers of ocean travel, the fear of the unknown, and the great diversity of God's creations. They also simply helped to sell a map. The monsters drawn on the maps may have looked whimsical, but in fact, more often than not, they were drawn from sources that the cartographers would have considered reliable. Descriptions from natural history journals, biology books or encyclopedias would all have helped them to bring the monsters into creation, as well as more deeply ingrained stories of mythology and folklore. In modern history, as more and more of the globe has become mapped, charted and thoroughly well-travelled, sightings of sea monsters have often migrated, both physically and figuratively, into the folklore of lakes and rivers across the globe. One of the most infamous is the monster that's supposed to live in Scotland's Loch Ness. Nessie, as it's so fondly dubbed, is said to be a large pleosaur-like beast that has provided the foundation for a number of similar tales across the globe fueling the Scottish tourist industry and providing the world with some of the longest-running, fiercely debated hoaxes with some hilariously amateur efforts along the way. Despite all the research poured into its discovery, Nessie still remains as elusive as ever, and whilst it may be seen as a quaint fairy tale to many, it remains as cryptozoological royalty for many more. In the Southern Hemisphere, the Australian bunyip evolved into modern times from Aboriginal folklore with wildly varying descriptions. At times it's a water spirit and at others a giant starfish. Most commonly, however, they're pictured as giant seal-like creatures with various adornments such as tusks, ears, tentacles and beaks. Across Asia, the Chinese Tianqi is a giant aquatic turtle with the head of a horse that swims through the heaven's lake, border hopping between China and North Korea. In Japan, Isie began life as a mare on the shores of Lake Ikeda in Kagoshima before a samurai stole her foal, causing her to jump into the lake and transform into a giant serpent-like dragon, reminiscent of the ancient sea monsters of old. In North America, entire books could be filled with the numerous legends of lake monsters, from Bessie in Ohio's Lake Erie, to the Canadian Igapogo with its octopus tentacles, feathers, many pairs of legs. And various other bizarre descriptions. With so many accounts of mysterious and oftentimes fantastic sea creatures having been reported throughout the centuries, from the most flamboyant folktales to the pseudo-scientific research of cryptozoologists and from all corners of the globe, it can be hard to filter the truly well-documented from the copy-pasted rumours of oral folklore and the credible from the flagrantly fictional. In the Middle Ages, Uncharted territory was filled in both maps and imagination with all numbers of otherworldly beasts, from the metaphorical monsters meant to symbolise the omnipotence of God or a fear of the unknown, to the simple misidentification and misunderstanding of the natural world. The seas were vast, endlessly deep, and already with whales, narwhals, squid and turtles full of known wonders, so it didn't take the wildest imaginations then to conjure up the possibilities of what could be, just out of sight. For 17th and 18th century Europeans, the Arctic especially, with its endless days, white bears and frozen seas, was a natural hive of monsters. As fringe as it may be today, in the 19th century, the study of cryptozoology was a valid, if not integral, area of ethnobiological curiosity. Articles investigating sightings of sea serpents were numerous and frequently enjoyed prominence in the leading natural history academic journals of the day. A period of great discovery, the 1800s saw a natural history rush where scientists, both professional and amateur, and often a blend of both, scrabbled to uncover, document, name and collect new species in a discipline that saw several newly emerging fields. Fierce egos, rivalries and good old-fashioned jingoism led the charge to lay bare for all the world to see a whole host of creatures that had, until that point, been spoken of only in legends. And at the top of this tree was the ever-elusive sea serpent. Advancements in paleontology, particularly, were reshaping the scientific understanding of the natural world and revealing new otherworldly monsters to the public. At that time, the concepts of extinction were in such infancy that, for many people, The concept that God would make an animal that would disappear from the planet entirely was a complex and controversial subject. The discovery of fossils like the marine-based reptile Mosasaurus in 1808 was showing people not only that sea monsters existed in the past, but blew wide open the possibilities that they still existed somewhere today. To many, the bones sure look familiar. A giant sea serpent complete with huge gaping jaws filled with sharp teeth and a body the size of a small ship, just like the old illustrations. Throughout this period, numerous publications from respected biologists investigated thousands of age-old sightings of sea serpents from a newly accepting angle. One sighting discussed in the period, and that still persists until today, was also one of the first well-documented modern accounts And would eventually gain the esteem of being classed as one of, if not the, foundational sea serpent sighting. It was that of Hans Egder from Greenland in the 18th century. Hans Egder was born in Harstad, Norway in 1686. His father was a civil servant, affording Hans the luxury of a relatively comfortable upbringing and an education taken on by his uncle, a vicar in the Lutheran church. This religious foundation set him on a path that he continued in 1701 after he graduated from the University of Copenhagen with a bachelor's degree in theology. After this graduation, he settled down marrying his wife Gertrude Rask and took the position of vicar in the Lutheran church in the Norwegian town of Vagen, in the heart of the city of Bergen, a coastal city dominated by its large port and harbour. In the first half of the 17th century, Norway was still part of the unsettled union of Denmark and Norway that made up the Dano-Norwegian territories, including Denmark, Norway, Iceland, Greenland and the Faroe Islands, and Bergen was the largest and busiest city in the Norwegian contingent, acting as the centre of trade for the country. Soon after his move, Hans became interested in the historical Norse settlement of Greenland, existing on the island since Erik the Red had led an expedition to the North American continent in the 10th century until sometime in the 15th century when it gradually declined and eventually disappeared. This was possibly through a combination of plummeting temperatures, falling profits on exports, plague, malnutrition, and fighting with the indigenous Inuit population, but ultimately no one was really sure at the time. Outside of common curiosity for the loss in communication with the settlement, Hans Egder's interest in the settlement was fuelled primarily by the possibility to preach and to convert the colonisers to the Lutherian Church, who would have been Catholic upon their original departure from Norway. Over a period of 13 years, he secured capital through the local merchants, set up the Bergen-Greenland Trading Company, and lobbied his cause to the Dutch-Norwegian king, King Frederick IV. In 1721, after being granted the title of official missionary, Hans Egder arrived in Greenland with colonial powers to settle, govern and carry out justice across the region. Along with Hans, his wife, five children and 40 other colonists also embarked on the journey and over the following years they established a small settlement which Hans used as a base for his expeditions to seek out the original settlers, chart the Greenland coast, document its flora and fauna and of course preached the word of the Lutheran church to the indigenous population at every opportunity, often through tried and true colonial tactics of threats of violence. Ultimately, Egda failed to find anything but ruins of the original Norse settlement, but was successful as a naturalist and missionary, found in the Greenland capital of Nook, and creating much of the geographical and biological knowledge of the island for the day. He left the island mission in the hands of his sons in 1735 after his wife died of smallpox and he returned to Bergen. Whilst his colonial life is important to establish his credentials as a naturalist, he would later go on to become a fellow of the Royal Norwegian Society of Sciences and Letters, it's not Egder's missionary work in Greenland that interests us in respect to sea monsters, but it's his experience with an encounter with what he called a most dreadful monster in 1734 just off the coast of Greenland that many ethnobiologists would later go on to consider the first modern sighting of a sea serpent. Despite being such a famous and historically important sighting, there is a remarkable amount of ambiguity over who was and was not present. At the very least, Hans Egder's son, Paul, was aboard a ship sailing from Denmark, approached the Greenland coast on the morning of July the 6th, 1734, and it's from Paul's description that Hans published the first report on the sighting in his 1741 book, A Description of Greenland. The eyewitness account takes up only a single paragraph in the work and recounts the sighting in a relatively casual manner. Regarding other wonders and monsters of the sea, Tormoda, in his History of Greenland and Iceland, writes about three different kinds all of which are supposed to have been seen in the waters of Greenland and Iceland. But none of them are, by us, or any in our time, been seen except a terribly big sea creature, which, in 1734, was seen in the sea outside the colony at 64 degrees, and was of this form and shape. It was a so enormously big creature that its head reached the yardarm where the body came out of the water, and the body was as thick as the ship and was three to four times as long. It had a long pointed nose and blew like a whale, had big broad flippers and the body seemed to be covered with a carapace or scales and the skin was wrinkled and rough. It was otherwise created at the rear like a serpent and when it went under the water it lifted itself backwards and raised then the tail up from the water a ship's length away from the body. Han's son Paul published his own account of the sighting later that year And although the accounts didn't differ in any meaningful way, Paul's version included an illustration of the coast of Greenland that included the sea monster that he had seen, drawn by fellow missionary, Reverend Bing, who was apparently aboard the ship at the same time with Paul. The image shows a U-shaped serpent, its head curling round and sticking out of the water, almost as tall as its head. The boat is included in the picture, which helped give its scale... And the monster is almost as tall as the highest mast. Facing upwards, heads soaring into the air, it's shooting a jet of water from its mouth. In the 16th century, when Hans Egder's account was published, it was largely accepted by many naturalists that the sea was home to all manner of undiscovered wonders, that the sighting described a giant sea serpent that no one had yet discovered was not so unbelievable, given the biblical depictions, mythology and bizarre medieval illustrations that had permeated the consciousness of the educated for so long. Erik Pontopidan, a respected Dutch historian and antiquarian, published his book Natural History of Norway in 1753, describing many accounts of sea monsters in an entirely straight-faced manner in an effort to seek the truth of what he coined as sea serpents. Despite the reality that it was a fascinating mix of folklore, mythology and hazy first-hand witness accounts, it was generally well regarded in its day. In the remote parts of Norway, according to some accounts, people have been poisoned with the excrements of the sea serpent, which are often seen here, especially in Nordland, in the summer months, floating on the water like a fat slime. The viscid matter is supposed by our fishermen to be somewhat vomited up by them, or else their sperm, or some other humour. If a fisherman finds this matter near his net, and inadvertently lets any of it touch his hand, it will occasion a painful swelling and inflammation, which has often proved so dangerous as to require an amputation of the limb. Mr Peter Dass, in his description of Nordland, is of opinion that this sea serpent may be called the leviathan, or the dragon of the ocean. Aside from sea serpents, he argues the case for the kraken and mermaids, too, with equal enthusiasm. When Olaus Magnus, a Swedish naturalist and cartographer, published his book, A Description of the Northern Peoples, in 1555, he included a chapter on monstrous fishes that gives a good indication of the logic of the time. The vast ocean presents a wonderful spectacle to every nation in its swirling waters. It exhibits its various offspring, which strike us not in their wonderful size and similarity to constellations, but rather through their threatening shapes, so that there appears to be nothing hidden either in the heavens, or on earth, or in earth's bowels, or even among household tools, which is not preserved in its depths. In this broad expanse of fluid ocean, receiving the seeds of life with fertile growth, as sublime nature ceaselessly gives birth, an abundance of monsters is found. As the centuries passed, much of the work of the naturalists shifted focus from the description of previously undocumented regions to the discovery of new, exotic and exciting species. As the dawn of discovery broke in the 19th century, scientists scrambled to become the first to classify an animal new to science, not least for the honour of providing it with its Latin name. This competition was fierce, and the field was muddy as corners were cut, hoaxes were deployed, and egos were both elevated and bruised. A good example of the willingness of the public to believe in the scientists at the time is in the tale of the Missouri Leviathan, A giant sea serpent, the bones of which were pieced together and put on public display by a German-American named Albert Koch in 1842. It has been called the Leviathan Misoriensis, or, more classically, with reference to the peculiar position and form of its tusks, which resemble in a pair of sickles extending horizontally on each side of the head, the Misorium theristochulodon, or sickle tusk. The skeleton, supported by an iron framework, stands 15 feet high and is 30 in length. The breadth between the two forelegs, as the animal stood, exceeds 8 feet between the hinder legs, something about six. A full-grown elephant placed beside this monster when its enormous frame was covered with flesh would have been born about the same proportion to it that a weanling lamb bears to the ewe that suckles it. In this piece from the English papers during its time on display in the UK, there is only a single hesitant criticism or display of scepticism that it's too general to be compared with a leviathan from the Bible. Cock toured the Missouri Leviathan's remains across America and the UK, despite the fact that the bones were, in truth, assembled from the remains of mastodons and elephants that he had pieced together to create a creature entirely from his own imagination in a classic Barnum-style humbug. The British Museum eventually put an end to the hoax when it recognised the unnatural placement of many of the joints and recognising the value of the bones anyway offered to buy the piece from Cock for a staggering £1,300. They then went on to reassemble the original skeletons of Mastodons for their own displays. Recognising a good opportunity, Cock took the profits and repeated the entire hoax stateside to a similar success. It was within this atmosphere that a sighting of a sea serpent took place in the coastal city of Gloucester, Massachusetts, in 1817, Witnessed by hundreds of people, the creature would spark rumors of immortality before thoroughly embarrassing the local Natural History Society and then going on to completely disappear. Sitting on the northeast coast of the United States, in 1817, the city of Gloucester in Massachusetts, New England, was a small fishing and whaling economy with a population of just over 1,500 people its large harbour carving a wide inlet into the Cape, surrounded by low buildings looking across the bay and out into the Atlantic Ocean. Though it had originally found its feet as a farming community, by the 19th century, the majority of the residents had morphed into fishermen, coopers, boat builders, captains and crew, and the harbour thronged daily with the comings and goings of the fishing boats that prospered in the Cold waters of the North Atlantic. Earlier that year... Gloucester had seen an especially cold winter and spring, and now that summer had arrived, it wasn't feeling any warmer. The wind whipped across the open harbour, bringing with it a bitter chill. On Sunday, August 10th, the streets were relatively busy with people coming and going. Church was still a social necessity at the time, though the fishing boats had long since ignored the day of rest. Susan Stover, a young lady of Gloucester, was walking along the shore with her father just by their seaside residence when she saw a peculiar sight out in the bay. In the water, plain as day, just by the shore was an animal that she could not describe in any other way than to call it a sea serpent, though its head, she clarified, was very plain the shape of a dog. It had been so close to the shore that her father's best reaction was to remove his hat so that he should not frighten him. The animal was seemingly pretty relaxed whether Mr Stover kept his hat on or not and frolicked in the water, turned away from them and casually slipped away, its parts popping in opposite directions. It was a peculiar sighting and somehow managed to fly quite under the radar. Whether or not people didn't believe her, or maybe she just didn't kick up much of a fuss, little was made of the description of the animal even after a second, third and fourth witness came forward and corroborated the story with their own sightings. That same morning, Lydia Wanson was in her house on Eastern Point overlooking the bay when her eye was drawn to something swimming in the water. Taking out a spyglass, she trained the warped glass upon what was seemingly the same strange animal that Mrs Stover had previously seen that morning. It looked like the boys of a sen, she said adding that it had been at the very least 60 to 70 feet in length and with a head as large of that as any horse. Whether or not Miss Watson had been hanging around some very small horses or Miss Stover had been hanging around some very large dogs is never confirmed, but somehow the animal appeared to grow in the latter account by quite some size. Even more strangely is that although Miss Stover had claimed to have been the closer of the two witnesses to the animal, Further accounts would seem to side with Miss Wonson. William Rowe thought that he saw the animal glide into the bay, flanked by two sharks, all three animals hounding down a shoal of baitfish. As the creature's head bobbed out of the water, William was sure that it had been at least as broad as a horse's head, and more or so not quite so long. The final glossary to witness the creature that Sunday was Amos Storey, an old mariner who saw the creature swimming in the bay just after noon. Amos, however, quite differently, chose to compare the head to that of a sea turtle, though he added that it had been larger than any dog's head that he had seen. Possibly, it was that stories of sea serpents in the town weren't that uncommon. There had been rumours and legends of similar beasts floating around the locality, dating as far back as 1638. But for a while, nothing more came of the strange sightings. Somehow, an animal over half the size of the average schooner, with a head like that of a sea turtle and as large as a horse's in size, had slipped into the bay, thoroughly enjoyed a swim in the shallows, and then vanished, all without causing much of a fuss at all. Over the following days, however, the animal was to come back, and its return would cause a much greater fuss. Two days later, on Tuesday, August 12th, Solomon Allen III, a ship's captain, was out in his boat in the harbour when he caught sight of the strange animal once again, coasting about in the water. Despite keeping a distance from the animal of about 150 yards and having no access to a spyglass, his later testimony was remarkably detailed and showed all the composure and no-nonsense directness that one might expect of an old, well-to-do mariner. I have seen a strange marine animal, That I believed to be a serpent in the harbour in said Gloucester. I should judge him to be between 80 and 90 feet in length, and about the size of a half-barrel, apparently having joints from his head to his tail. I was about 150 yards from him when I judged him to be the size of a half-barrel. His head formed something like the head of the rattlesnake, but nearly as large as the head of a horse. When he moved on the surface of the water, his motion was slow, at times, playing about in circles, and sometimes moving nearly straight forward. When he disappeared, he sunk apparently directly down, and would next appear at two hundred yards from where he disappeared in two minutes. His colour was a dark brown, and I did not discover any spots upon him. The captain was a relatively unique witness, however, in that he went on to claim that he saw the animal over the following two consecutive days, though these times. It was from the safety of the shore and with the aid of a spyglass. On Wednesday the 13th, he claimed to have spent the majority of the day, in fact, watching the animal. Unsurprisingly, by now, these sightings were beginning to cause quite a stir in Gloucester. With so many people coming forward with stories of the serpent-like beast, and so many of them being reasonably well-respected local businessmen, people began to flock to the shore in hopes of catching a glimpse for themselves. The locals were not to be disappointed, as that Thursday, on the 14th of August, with the shore of the harbour positively thronging in a festival-like atmosphere, the animal returned to frolic in the waters to the delight of tens, if not hundreds, of delighted witnesses. Mary Rowe and Mrs. Moore both saw it that morning, and it had been so close to the shoreline at one point that Mrs. Moore trembled like a leaf at the sight of it. The witnesses were not only on the shore however and within hours the harbour waters were teeming with boats of various sizes as merchants and captains pushed out from their moorings to get a closer look at the animal. Matthew Gaffney, a young Gloucester-based ship carpenter in his early 20s and self-professed crack shot, hopped in a boat with his brother Daniel and friend Augustine Weber, with an aim to take the animal in. Gaffney lined up his shot as the animal approached their boat And when it was within 30 feet he fired off his gun square at his head. I had a good gun and took good aim. I aimed at his head and think I must have hit him. He turned towards us immediately after I had fired and I thought he was coming at us, but he sunk down and went directly under our boat and made his appearance at about 100 yards from where he sunk. He did not turn down like a fish but appeared to settle directly down like a rock my gun carries a ball of 18 to the pound and I suppose there is no person in town more accustomed to shooting than I am. Despite his confidence, the animal survived the shot. It would be easy to assume that Gaffney simply missed, but the cocky young carpenter would have none of it and instead rumours of a supernatural survivability began to surface around the town. Descriptions of its size continued to fluctuate though a head about the size of a horse was relatively constant. William Foster was another local to have caught sight of the animal on the 14th, his description being one of the more poetic and given a reasonably confident estimation of length. He afterwards went in different directions, leaving on the surface of the water marks like those made by skaters on the ice. Then he would move in a straight line west and would almost in an instant change his course to east, bringing his head as near as I could judge to where his tail was, or in fact to the extreme hinder parts visible, raising himself as he turned six or eight inches out of the water and shooing a body of at least 40 feet in length. The same day, Ep a 70-year-old shipmaster, saw the animal just after sunset. He had been down on the shore hoping to see the animal in the day, but had not been so lucky and had just turned to return home when he caught sight of the beast's arcing wake. From the shore. He watched the animal through a spyglass as he went about casually amusing himself. Eloy's account would have caused some considerable stirring in the town, as his family were one of the oldest, most well-off and well-respected in the whole town. It had been a busy day for sea serpent sightings, but for the animal it was all but a warm-up act, as the story wound its way towards press offices primed to blow the small harbour into the national spotlight a frightful fish. Yesterday, information was received in this town from Gloucester of the appearance of an unusual fish or serpent in their harbour. The letter represented that the head of it eight feet out of the water was as large as the head of a horse and of great length. It was afterwards said that two had been seen. A party was soon provided to take him with muskets, harpoons and every instrument which good marksmen and whalemen could use, we soon after received a letter informing that the fish had been seen for several days and that it was first discovered by the fishermen. All attempts to take the fish had been ineffectual. Quite different accounts are given of its length which all agree to say that it is great and that its body is round, that it is very quick in its motions and in all directions. The person adds I have just seen the fish, sporting in the water, and it shows a length of 50 feet within a quarter of a mile from the shore, and adds that we have never seen anything like it. A man who discharged his musket within 30 feet of it says the head was partly white. The inhabitants were determined to repeat their attempts to take it. Another letter says, I have had an opportunity to see the fish, and the street is full of persons who are going to enjoy the sight of it. It appears in joints like the wooden boys on a net rope, almost as large as a barrel. Two muskets were fired at it and it appeared to hit it in the head, but without effect. It immediately disappeared and in a short time was seen a little below, but in the dark we lost sight of him. It appears like a string of gallon kegs 100 feet long. With the publication of the story in the Boston papers, the harbour saw an immediate influx of sightseers and thrill-seekers from the city who flocked to the small town in hopes of seeing the sea serpent. The local fishermen devised huge nets which they hoped to capture the animal, and the local New England natural historians sprung to action with grand hopes of making a fantastic scientific discovery. Sadly, for those with hopes of capturing the monster, it appeared to have left the harbour as it chased schools of various baitfish up and down the New England coast as might have been expected. With the introduction of the newspapers, the descriptions of the animal itself quickly began to morph, and by the 22nd of August, its length had extended to 150 feet. Its mouth was being described commonly as enormous, and its entire body was now apparently cased in shell. In fact, the mythologizing was fully underway. The chance for taking or killing this creature seems to be small, It requires not merely the club of Hercules, but the cunning contrivance of a Vulcan. The papers also dug up tales of an earlier sighting along the same shorelines from 1793. Not only was the 1793 monster similar in shape and size, but in keeping with what was fast becoming a tradition, its head was also routinely described as being the size of a horse's. It was an easy leap for the papers to make, that it was more than likely the reappearance of the very same monster, and connections were being made with monsters from the far-off shores of Norway. Meanwhile, whilst the papers were having their fun, and the sightseers flocked to the small coastal town to experience the serpent for themselves, a small natural history society from Boston began the motions of finding proof of the sea serpent. Knowing too well that the likelihood of a specimen was almost nil, they sketched the plans to collate an abundance of eyewitness reports from which they could draw from. As early as the 18th of August, several days before the story had reached the national papers, the Linnaean Society of New England met in Boston in order to discuss the rumours flowing from Gloucester of the Sea Serpent. The Linnaean Society was a gentleman's club whose membership was made up of prominent and well-off members of the local community with an interest in amateur science across multiple disciplines with a focus on natural history. They met weekly in Boston on Saturday evenings to muse over the scientific news of the day and to arrange lectures as well as curate their very own Museum of Natural History, which they'd set up in Boyston Hall. Founded by Dr Jacob Bigelow, Professor of Materia Medica at the Harvard Medical School and author of *Florula Bostoniensis, a catalogue of Boston floral life which he illustrated himself in 1814, it was a jolly fun social club for its learned members to swap books and drink sherry far more than it was a serious scientific organisation. The conclusion of their meeting on that August Saturday night was the formation of a committee consisting of the Honourable Judge John Davis, Jacob Bigelow and Francis Gray, in order to collect evidence on the mysterious animal spotted in Gloucester and to compile a report on what it could be. The committee got to work immediately, as Judge John Davis wrote to a man named Lonson Nash, a Gloucester lawyer, the very next day, asking him to gather a selection of witnesses who would be willing to relay their statements under oath. Lonson Nash was a British-born Gloucesterite and a naturalised citizen of America. He had moved to Massachusetts as a teenager at the end of the 18th century. Described in his obituary as a gentleman of the old school in his life, manner and principles, he was a practising member of the Massachusetts Bar and a strikingly dapper chap. In 1807, he married a woman named Nabby, the 19 year old daughter of Gloucester's tavern and stagecoach proprietor, and the couple settled quietly in the town after Nash had a brief dabble in politics that saw him gain significant clout in the area. After he was contacted from the Linnaean Society, Nash was keen to get started immediately with reeling in his witnesses, mainly selected from local businessmen, calling on Solomon Allen third the day after he received his communication from Judge John Davis. Nash had been supplied a list of 25 questions that he should ask each witness, including, was it smooth or rough? And, what were the size and shape of its head? And had the head ears, horns or other appendages? He was also given instructions to forbid the individual witnesses to speak with one another about the sea serpent until after their questioning. He kept the circle tight in his investigation, which lasted a single week, and on the 28th of August, he handed over a not-so-grand total of eight sworn statements along with his own unsworn statement to Judge Davis to be included in the committee's report. As Nash collected his reports, the beast continued to frolic in the bay and on nearby shorelines. Witness sightings continued to flow into the newspapers throughout the end of August from as far away as Kettle Cove, over 80 kilometres south of Gloucester. There were several erroneous reports that the monster had been taken in the national press, each one claiming that the animal was over 100 feet in length. Captain John Beach, a Gloucesterite who professed to have been within an oar's length of the monster on several occasions, illustrated the beast and took it to Boston where the original print of the re-engraving, standing at 35 feet long and 20 feet tall, was put on public display with admission to view the piece charged at 25 cents. The resulting image shows a massive, dark brown monster in the Bay of Gloucester, surrounded by boats. Perched on the surface of the water, its body is covered in large scales in the shape of arrowheads, and its head, more the shape of a bird of prey than any serpent, has an enormous beak filled with razor-sharp teeth and a long, winding, forked tongue. Slowly, as August faded into memory and the press began to lose interest in the story, the reports of the sea serpent died away, with only the occasional retread of a witness report tossed in to fill column inches now and then. In mid-September, however, a discovery on a nearby beach would reignite the excitement for the mystery monster, when one of its babies was found, killed, and sent to the Linnaean Society for further investigation. Just as things were quietening down on the national stage, A group of labourers, working in a field near to Loblolly Cove, a section of Sandy Bay north of Gloucester on the northeast coast of Cape Han, came across an odd-looking serpent, gliding its way to the waterline. With their caution heightened by the recent stories of the monster in Gloucester Harbour, the young worker called over to his father, Mr Colby, who he had been working alongside, and he and his workmate, Gorham Norwood, ran over to take a look at the peculiar snake, which had taken shelter under a rock. Norwood stabbed his pitchfork through the animal's side whilst Mr Colby stoved its head in with a rock. Despite acknowledging that snakes were common throughout the local area, several onlookers in Sandy Bay who saw the remains that evening were convinced that the snake had been a baby of the recently seen sea serpent. Sensing an opportunity, Mr John Gott bought the remains with an eye to put them up for public exhibition in Boston and thankfully for the Linnaean Society, graciously allowing them to not only examine the remains, but to perform something of an autopsy too. Dr Jacob Bigelow did the honours, inspecting the body, and wrote a report to be included with the evidence already collected from the eyewitnesses. Being the keen illustrator that he was, he also sketched the animal and included the diagram with his report. The animal had the general form and external characteristics of a serpent, but was remarkably distinguished from all others of that class known to your committee by a row of protuberances along the back, apparently formed by undulations of the spine. From the back of the head to the first of these protuberances was a distance of three inches and three-fifths of an inch, during which the spine was straight. Between this place and the vent, its undulations were nearly regular. Twenty-four of these protuberances, about equally distant from each other, occupying the space between the neck and the vent. From the latter to the 25th protuberance, the spine forms a straight line, of the length of 1 inch and 9 tenths. Its undulations there commenced again, and were continued quite to the extremity of the tail, forming 16 more distinct protuberances. The size of these 40 protuberances was proportioned to that of the body at the places where they were respectively situated, The body could be bent with facility upward and downward as represented in plate 1, a circumstance not common to other serpents. Those parts of the spine which were straight admitted much less motion in vertical direction than those which were undulatory. Nestled throughout the cold, specific scientific language were the dimensions of the beast, which was a mighty 2 feet eleven and a half inches. It was safe to be said pretty far from the estimated 90-plus feet of its parent, but then it was a baby after all. The Linnaean Society promptly published their collection of testimonies along with a dissection report and accompanying illustrations, proudly announcing that they had discovered an entirely new species, revealing its scientific name to the world as Scoliophis Atlanticus, and concluding, The appearance at nearly the same time and place of two creatures agreeing with each other in certain important and conspicuous particulars, disagreeing in the most remarkable of these particulars with other animals of their class, and between whom no difference but that of size has been discovered, must naturally lead to a conjecture that they are of the same species. The discovery of the remains set off a flurry of new sightings around Cape Pan, and were reported in newspapers back in the old world, as newspapers across England, from London to Liverpool, wrote stories of epic sea battles, where the fishermen of Gloucester took to arms in order to catch the mighty beast, only to be chased ashore shortly after they had begun. There was one rather large problem, however. Apparently, Dr Bigelow did not have too much experience with snakes, as despite his repeated exclamations throughout the dissection report, that the remains showed dozens of unique characteristics, unseen before in other serpents, it was, in fact, the remains of a common black snake. The revelation sank the integrity of both the Linnaean society and their report, including all of the included eyewitness testimonies, and by extension, the entire story of the sea serpent itself. With the spectacular failure of the Linnaean Society to recognise a common snake abundant in the local area, much of the national hype behind the sea serpent sightings quickly dissipated. The story didn't entirely disappear, however, and over the following year the Gloucester sea serpent re-emerged periodically. One of the most notable examples was of the sightings in the spring and summer of 1818, which concluded with the hiring of a Captain Richard Rich, an experienced local whaler, who was tasked with capturing the beast with the hopes of proving the stories once and for all. Captain Rich assembled a crew of fishermen who had all claimed to have seen the monster in Gloucester Harbour the year before, and together they went out on the search. The hunt led to a sighting and harpooning of an animal that Captain Rich was sure was over a 100 feet long. However, after a frantic and stressful chase, it turned out to be nothing more exotic than a bluefin tuna. So what exactly was it that had been swimming in the waters of Gloucester Harbour and frolicking throughout the New England coastline? With such an abundance of eyewitnesses, it seemed churlish to excuse the story as a fabrication, and surely something was happening. Was it, as many at the time believed, a giant sea serpent, or was it something a little more explainable? One of the more simple and common theories, and for reasonably good reasons, is that of the misidentification of a known creature. For years, misidentifications were often the cause of temporary scientific excitement, when new species were sure to have been discovered, only for them to wind up as something far more common upon closer inspection. One only needs to see the case of Captain Rich, who was sure that his prey had been over 100 feet in length, until it had been caught, of course, and it turned out to be a tuna. The speed of the fish and the way it had jumped out of the water, leaving a long wake, seemingly completely threw off even one of the most experienced whalers of the day. But if it was a misidentification, then what can it have been? One of the most obvious creatures to jump for is a species of whale. Whales, with their breaching behaviour, can easily strike a peculiar silhouette if the jumping behaviour were not expected, as it almost certainly would not have been for the vast majority of witnesses. Baskin sharks were another usual suspect, commonly misidentified due to its large size, relatively unusual docile behaviour, swimming near the surface in shallow waters, and the fact that their identification was relatively late to the zoological record, where they were often mischaracterized as whales until the mid-18th century. In an article written for the Skeptical Enquirer in 2019, Joe Nicol, author and prominent sceptic, suggested that the sea serpent had been a case of a misidentified narwhal, using evidence of narwhal behaviour which he believed had similarities to many of the descriptions from the original eyewitness reports. Nicol proudly declares the 200-year-old mystery solved, despite the evidence really being no stronger or weaker than that of countless other misidentification theories. An extension of this theory is proposed by the likes of Robert France, An ethnobiologist who, in his essay for the academic journal of the Society of Ethnobiology, suggested that many sea monster sightings from history, including both that of Egda and that of Gloucester, were of large marine animals, such as whales or basking sharks, entangled in fishing nets and other fishing equipment. The animals, dragging a long trail of assorted jetson behind them, can easily create the illusion of a giant sea serpent-like creature, as their netting weaves and winds in unison with the animals' movements one of the more complicated areas when researching old reports lie in both the poor translations or even more simply in the confusing use of language the nature of the stories is such that it's all too easy for sensationalism to warp original reports scientists and laymen alike use common descriptions that the average person could understand in order to paint a clear picture of what they had seen, and so it's easy to see how something with a head the size of an average dog in one report can quickly warp and twist into a beast with a snout full of razor-sharp teeth in another. As a result, the longer the stories continued, the further from their original existence they seemed to slide, until eventually they morphed entirely into mythology, legend and folklore. This also continues into stories like that of Matthew Gathney, did he simply miss his shot? Was the animal more heavily armoured than expected and its gun incapable of fatally wounding it? Or was it like Gaffney would have people believed, possibly due to inflated pride, a sign that the animal was some kind of immortal monster? Ultimately, we'll never know what it was in the waters of Gloucester Harbour back in 1817, but the story's continued existence is proof enough that whatever it was most likely to be The origin's testimonies are curious enough to maintain serious interest. So what is it that stirs the continued belief in cryptids and sea monsters amongst a society that most would consider to be enlightened? Is it that in a world of GPS, satellite imagery and ultrasound scans, where the excitement of discovery is near enough exhausted, the belief that these monsters exist, out there somewhere hidden from prying eyes, affords us a romantic sense of wonder about the world around us and transforms the vast, empty wilderness or the deep sea into an exciting playground of possibilities? Or is it something else? Is the chatter in the woods really a Bigfoot just out of sight? Or the wake on the horizon, the tail of a leviathan plunging back to the depths? Did the people of Gloucester see a narwhal back in 1817 Or was it truly an undiscovered sea serpent that lost its way for a few weeks before making its way casually back to the depths? So that was the tale of the Gloucester sea serpent and I think it was a lot of fun Um, and I think it was really interesting actually. We'll come back to it after these short advert breaks. Welcome back. So yeah, that was an interesting story. I really enjoyed it. To sort of like finish up the season on something a little bit fun. I I think... You know, there was that obvious sort of creation of, of of myth and and folklore. You could see that right from the start, in and in the most obvious way is as as you've read the descriptions and the eyewitness reports as they went on from day to day, and as the story sort of grew older, the monster got longer. Like quite rapidly, it grew from like fifty to 100 feet and then suddenly 150 feet like at first a lot of the descriptions were quite conservative on the length and then and but very quickly you know within like a few days they're they're almost up to 100 feet and then give it a week or two and and it's 100 to 150 feet you know so you can you can see that extend quite quickly um and that is more or less like classic kind of you know the way sort of mythology and folklore works across like all sorts of genres that, you know, the way they, they kind of expand over time, the further from the original report it gets, the more usually sensational they become. And you you can see the same with the horse head thing also. You know, at first it was the size of a horse's head and, and it was often described as, you know, looking like a sea serpent, even a sea turtle, you think, okay, I can see sea serpent, sea turtle. Yeah, you know same sort of difference right it's a similar description and and later there would be other illustrations of it or descriptions of it having like a snout with teeth and and you know these drawings of it with an actual horse's head or you know like 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 the shape of an actual horse's head when that was never actually the original description the description was it was just the size of a horse's head but of course then these things sort of morph over time whenever we see these stories i really enjoy seeing how the stories progress in those ways, so that I found that really interesting. In terms of what it actually was, though, now there's a question, isn't it? I mean, I, I probably don't believe that it was a sea monster, I, and I, I tell you what, I else I don't believe though. I don't really believe Joe Nickell, and and actually, I found his piece in the Skeptical Inquirer to be quite frustrating, and and precisely what I find frustrating about skeptics, or you know, self-professed skeptics in that actually he, he suggests that it could have been a narwhal and, and doesn't really lay down a great deal of evidence for it other than that he thinks that it, it seemed to sort of, um, from the eyewitness accounts, he he believed that it displayed similar behaviours that a narwhal sometimes displays. But then he has the the kind of like the arrogance to suggest that, oh, he's solved this now. Oh, okay, you, have you? You haven't solved this. All you've really done is provide a bunch of anecdotal evidence and suggested that it's similar, which, sure, OK. But but if you're drawing from the eyewitness accounts and you're saying it's like a narwhal, really that's no different from anyone else say, saying that they draw from the eyewitness accounts and saying it's 100 feet long. The only reason Joe Nichols' account is any more believable is because it's it's a more rational explanation. But it's not any more evidence-based. And and yet, you know, he he names his piece in The Skeptical Inquirer A 200-Year-Old Mystery Solved. Yeah, sure, Joe. Like, sure, you have. So, I didn't really like that. Um, a, a theory that I found a great deal more convincing was theory that um, it was things like fishing nets and stuff, and it, and it was possibly, you know, in a way, possibly like a narwhal, like uh, like, like um, Joe Nichols' theory could have been like a narwhal or a whale or a basking shark or, or, or some known creature, basically. But uh, entangled in fishing nets, and and he gives like really good evidence as to why this could be the case. And to be honest, as soon as I read it, I I, I got that picture in my mind, and it was like someone switching a light on, you know, like ah oh, yeah yeah, I can totally imagine that. You know, you see like this a whale breaching out of the water, and as it sort of goes back down under the water, if it's trailing a load of fishing nets, they're going to kind of whip up out of the water after it just like a really long serpent's tail right and you can i mean instantly you 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 read that theory or 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 instantly i read that theory and i and i just felt like this is plausible I, I see this i can i can understand where they're coming from and and actually the theory is is a lot more to it than that you know it goes more into the details of how um this was actually a common problem that large whales would like basically get entangled in fishing nets and drag them off and it would actually be a common problem because they weren't made for animals of that size obviously and they were entangling themselves in these nets again it was only speculating on anecdotal evidence really but it it, i don't know it just seemed to me to my money it seemed like a very well thought out and quite strongly evidence-based like say going on the fact that they, they they kind of went into these ideas that, you know, they found, he found a lot of evidence to show that, you know, it was a common problem, basically that these animals were being entangled and, 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 and yeah, I I, I can certainly see that. So, I mean, sometimes they even are using descriptions of jetsam, uh to describe what they're seeing. And, 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 you know, you think, well, perhaps if you think it looked a bit like jetsam perhaps it actually was, um, so, yeah, I just found that a really strong theory, actually, as to to what it may have been. It, it, the paper that I read that from, actually, um, in case you want to read it, was called The Ethnozoology of Egda's Most Dreadful Monster, The Foundational Sea Serpent, um, by Robert France. Um, uh, it was written for the Society of Ethnobiology, uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I'll put the link anyway in the sources. Um, but, yeah, it was Robert France's theory about this netting that I just found to be the most strongest... Um, and and yes, yeah, it's, it's worth reading. The, the the paper you do have to pay for the paper, but it, it's not crazy amounts if you get the PDF version. Um, I don't think. Yeah, anyway, it'll be in the in the in the sources in the in the show notes. So anyway, that that's about that. If you you know, think I'm wrong, if you if you wanna tell me that it definitely was a sea serpent, um get in touch. Uh, you could do so, contact at darkhistories.com. Or otherwise, if you want to get in touch with me for any other reason whatsoever, um, you could do so. You can also find me on social media. Um, If you go to the podcast website, darkhistories.com, you'll be able to find links to all the social media, links to all the ways you can support the show if you'd like to do so. Um, Or, you know, links to the merch store and the books and everything. It's all darkhistories.com. So yeah, that... Pretty much, like I say, wraps up uh, this season five. Thanks very much for listening. W- I will be back in January with a season six. And um, before that, obviously, say like, this is my December break, which I take mainly because it's, you know, my birthday and Christmas. And I just kind of think it's nice to have some time at the end of a season to, to kind of regroup and just begin sort of planning the, the season six and and then sort of just go through things that which need doing behind the scenes really um sort of like a house clearing sort of thing for the new year and the new series so um yeah i'd be taking a few weeks off but i say that um there's still going to be the christmas campfire episodes and again if you want to get involved just email me your story uh by the 20th of december that'd be brilliant so yeah i'm still going to be here i'm i believe i'm also sort of planning i say planning um i think you're doing a, a a live stream in december um super casual just more of a hangout stream really a sort of maybe we would do a bit of a retrospective about season five and just have a chat about you know the stories in season five and just have a bit of a hangout really so it's going to be super casual nothing like heavy planned for it so i'm going to be around throughout december um but the next episode will be in January. So that'll be the start of season one. Season six, episode one will be coming in January. So I'll be back real soon. Um, I, I don't need to say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays or anything because I'll, I'll speak to you before then. But yeah, uh, until that point, have a great run up to Christmas. Stay safe, stay healthy and uh, stay warm. It's it's really cold here. I, I think probably the reason I got that you know, winter virus thing, that chest thing uh last week. The 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 temperatures just dropped overnight from like 10, 12 degrees somewhere around there to like minus 2 overnight. So, I think that's probably what what made me ill. So, yeah, keep wrapped up, stay warm, stay healthy and uh have a great December. I shall see you really really soon. Say, I'll see you before Christmas. So, Thanks very much for listening. It's been a, a fantastic season. Thank you so much for all your support throughout season five, or, well, and up to season five. Uh, it's it's like I say, it's, it's been a great year. Um, loads of great reviews, um, loads of great emails, loads of great, just, just so much support from everyone. So, yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'll see you real soon. Sleep tight.